Welcome to the Running Explained podcast. I'm Elizabeth, a marathoner, running coach, and answer seeker. When I became a new runner at the age of 29, I had so many questions, but it felt like I was on my own to figure out all of the answers. So now I'm here to answer all your running questions to help make you a better, smarter, faster runner. There's no question too simple and no topic too complex. So let's get started. My guest this week is Montana De Pasquale, certified running coach and former division one track and cross country runner. I first connected with Montana on Instagram, which she posts the most beautiful graphics about things that are really important for us to understand on like a fundamental level. And one of those things that she talks about often and is such an important concept for runners to really internalize is this idea of how long it actually takes or how long does it take to see the progress that you are looking for in your running. Running is not an overnight process. It takes forever. Like as long as you keep running, you are going to be improving in some capacity. There's no end game. There's no final like, oh, this is it. You are always striving to become better and better and better. So this entire conversation is about how long does it actually take to become a faster runner? It doesn't happen overnight. It's about playing the long game. And you need a lot of patience when it comes to that. Montana, welcome to the show. I'm excited to have you here. Hi, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. So like all my guests, first up, I want to hear about you as a runner. I want to hear your origin story. How did you become a runner and how did you become a coach? Yeah, so I started running. I've been running for a long time. It almost feels like um, it's hard to remember a time before running was in my life. Um, But I started running in middle school and I had played softball all growing up. I played softball for about nine years. I remember eighth grade, I was playing for my middle school team and we would have to do warm up laps around the field. And I would be running as slow as I possibly could could um, and be way out in front of everyone else, Um, combined with the fact that I was a very, very mediocre softball player. Our track and cross country coach saw that and he was like, hey, I think you may be in the wrong sport. Um, So he kind of nudged me towards cross country. I did my first ever season that year. Um, And I also, I remember in eighth grade running just at our gym class mile, I think I ran like a 550, 551 mile off of like very little or low training. And that was the first time I was like, you know, hey, maybe this is something that I can be good at. Um, that's that's how it all started. I really eased my way into the sport. Um, I wasn't running full time year round until my junior year of high school. Um, so eighth grade and ninth grade, I was just doing one season. I was just doing cross country. My sophomore year of high school, I was doing cross country and outdoor track. And then I wasn't doing all three seasons until my junior and senior year. And then eventually was recruited. Um, I ran at the D1 level in college, which was an amazing experience. Um, But when I think back, I think back to those really early days and I was so green, like as a freshman in high school and knew nothing about running. But um, I think every single coach I've ever had would say I've always been such a student of the sport. So I remember like begging my high school cross country coach to just like pass along. He would pass along like runner's world articles that he would like clip for me. He would pass along training books he had. I just, I would soak everything up. I was just so curious and always, um, you know, wanted to like learn and learn more and do better. Um, and eventually, you know, how I got my news and information changed. And I started looking at, I started reading research studies and diving into some more evidence-based, um, work along with, um, I've read so many different training books of all like the great old coaching greats, Lydiard, um, I always butcher his name, but Percy Ceruti, Percy Ceruti, um, all those Canavo, um, all those old guys. So um, always been a student of the sport. And I think that's one thing that started right from the beginning. And that's such an important thing, I think, for any runner who really, or anybody, your hobby, right? Whatever your hobby is, to become a student of that hobby to really understand what it is that you're doing, you know, what is it doing to your body? What is it doing to your mind? What is the science behind the thing that you're doing? It's more than just kind of putting your sneakers on and going out the door, which is amazing. And that's such an important part of it. But when it, when it totally shifts from being something that you do, you're like, yeah, I run because I like to do it versus, Hey, I run. And now I have these goals. And now I'm trying to understand how to get from A to B to C. You really have to start learning more about what actually is happening. Uh, and that's such an, totally. such an important part of this. So today we're talking about our topic is how long does it take to 
get better, to get faster, to be able to run more, to be able to run longer. And I will admit the reason I wanted to have this conversation in general is because one of the most frustrating questions I get asked and I get asked on a regular basis is how long will it take me to be able to do X, Y, Z, or how long, how can I run a sub 25 K? Can I do, can I run a Boston qualifying marathon? Um, how long does easy running take to work? And those are such frustrating questions to get as a coach, especially one where it's like, I have absolutely zero additional information about the runner other than the fact that they're asking the question, because as we're going to be discussing a lot today, it depends um, on so, so, so many factors. So Montana, when you get asked this question as a coach, how long does it take for me to see progress, to see improvement? Can I run this time? Like, what do you, where does your mind go when you start to answer questions like that? What do you have to say to somebody who might be asking you a question like that? Yeah, so I do hear that a lot. Um, and I think exactly as you said, context is everything. So, so much of it will depend on the person. Um, I've always believed that a sign of a good coach, um, one, they're going to say it depends a lot. Two, they're not going to speak in absolutes. They're not going to speak in black and whites. They're not going to make any guarantees. So if you have a coach who is telling you like, heck yeah, I can get you to BQ in 12 weeks or like BQ guaranteed in X time frame that they are probably not a very good coach because no one can make those guarantees. So a couple things I want to emphasize is one that in anyone's path to improvement, first of all, there's um, a lot of it depends on the person. It depends on your unique genetic makeup, your muscle fiber makeup. Everyone physiologically responds to training at a different rate. Just you could be training two people who on paper are extremely similar and maybe are starting from a similar point and they're both going to like controlling for any outside factors. They're still going to improve at different rates. But there's in anyone's path to improvement, there's things that we can control and there's things that we can't control. And I also think it's important to differentiate between improving and getting fitter and actually seeing that like play out in a PR. Um, so you can be getting faster and improving and you may not get that PR. I see this happen, unfortunately, a lot in the marathon. There's so many variables and unknowns in the marathon and it's heartbreaking and it's unfair. I'm sure anyone who's been running marathons long enough can attest that you can be in amazing shape and on paper, everything is pointing to the fact that you are going to run X time. And that is improvement. I think it's really important to, you know, know that, um, and be proud of yourself and commend yourself for that. Um, even if you get the, even if you end up running that on paper time and getting that big flashy PR. And that goes back to the fact that, again, there's things that we can't control, like the weather. So for example, I've had a number of runners who've been poised for, we've been base building for so long through COVID, they've made huge fitness gains. We both know that they had a huge race in them this fall, and then they ran an early fall marathon even up until like chicago marathon first week of october was so warm this year and it was just so hot it's been such an unfortunate fall and they didn't get even if they did pr they maybe didn't run that huge pr that we knew they had in them um so again there's things that we can't control and there's things that we can't control in anyone's path to improvement i like to say that you don't necessarily see your toenails growing but you look one down you know one day and, and you have to cut them like they've grown you know kind totally. of out of sight um, out of mind. And that, that is basically how our body works, like with everything. And, you know, how long does it take for me to see improvements from this workout or how does running consistently make me faster or fitter? And it's like, you're getting fitter every single day, every single time that you go through the process of training, whether it's a run or a week or a month, you're getting fitter in like microscopic doses, right? That's what we're doing totally. is adding up all these microscopic doses of increased fitness. But generally speaking, there are some kind of like, yeah, it takes this many weeks or this many months to see specific kinds of physiological changes. Do you want to kind of run down what we expect to see on a timeline of two weeks from this, four weeks from this, six weeks from this? Because this will also, I think, help bring some context into why the taper exists, for example, yes. or yeah. why you can't just like do one workout and the next day go run your race, that sort of thing. Yeah. So, so let me break down your question a little bit. So, um, 
everyone it all it depends on a number of factors it depends on where the person is starting from if they spent time in base building prior if you're starting from scratch and jumping right into or trying to jump right into a race specific cycle you may have some issues um you know ideally we want to be in a base building phase for at least six weeks is kind of the minimum i recommend and then so we go from base building then we go into a race specific cycle and the race specific cycle culminates with a taper as we work through that race specific cycle we should ideally be doing work that is getting more and more specific for your distance whether that's the mile or the marathon and it should be gradually getting more and more challenging as the cycle progresses and then we go into our taper where we start backing off on volume backing off on intensity we want to make sure that we're not making cuts that are too severe so that you don't end up flat on race day. Um, and we start moving into more of like tune-up workouts or sharpening workouts versus um, like big fitness building workouts. Each of those training phases are really important. And one thing I encourage, and honestly, this past crazy year and a half has been such a, it's been a learning point too for me as a coach. And it's only reminded me more that there are so many, like it's, been more eye-opening at just how many things there are outside of our control you know you can be in the shape of your life I had people who are poised to run Tokyo right before that was like the very first big race that got canceled and then the whole world shut down you know you can be in peak fitness ready to run the marathon of your life run a marathon major and then a worldwide pandemic happens um you know it can be a really hot fall whatever there's so many things that will affect will affect our progress so yeah, going through all of those phases is, is important, um, but just how I want to say that you can't underestimate the base building phase. That's so important. And I'm now seeing so many benefits from people who've, you know, because of lack of racing opportunities due to COVID, we've spent the better part of the past year and a half just in base building, laying that really big foundation, that so-called bottom of the pyramid. But the majority of people in, whether they're in base building or in a race specific cycle, will see results pretty quickly. And I really encourage people to look for those small, like intangible wins, even if we're not doing races to necessarily quantify that, you will see improvements. You will start to notice things like um, your easy pace is becoming easier. You're becoming less winded after runs. Um, over time, your easy pace will increase at the same exact effort level. That is you getting fit. That's your body making aerobic adaptations. Um, so again, we can see results in as quick as four to six weeks. Again, it will depend on the person. And I think that's important. To, that's important to point out though, four to six weeks. You and I as a coaches are saying, yeah, you could see it in as little as four to six weeks. And a yes. runner is thinking, oh my God, it's going to take a month to a month and a half for me to even start to see possible signs of improvement. That seems yes. like a lifetime. And that's, that's a huge mindset shift. Like I always have to educate my clients. I'm like, this takes time. Like I am not here yes. to get you faster overnight because that's impossible, but it actually doesn't yes. take that much time. I mean, four to six weeks is really nothing. Yes. Yeah. And you will, I mean, there's other improvements um, and things that you will see quicker than that. So if I have someone that has only used the majority of people I work with, some people I work with have used coaches in the past. The majority of people um, have maybe used like online cookie cutter plans um, or they've been self-coaching themselves, just trying to kind of piece together what smart and training, what smart and proper training looks like. Um, so those people will see really quick, even if it's not necessarily fitness improvements, but they'll see improvements in their recovery. They'll see improvements in just how their body is able to handle the week to week of training from training smart and training in a polarized fashion. Most people are not training in a polarized fashion. So it's a total mind shift to get them to understand that to get faster, um, a lot of people do need to actually slow down. We need to be slowing people's easy runs down is usually one of the first like low hanging fruits I work with. And, you know, again, it, it takes some work and it takes some buy-in on their part to understand that yes, actually running slower will make you faster in the long term. But once people start doing that, I've had numerous emails and texts from people saying like, oh my God, running doesn't hurt all the time and it doesn't suck all the time. And I've had people who, um, I'll give one example, a client who is now poised to, um, she has tremendous potential, um, you know, has a huge ceiling under her and I think it's poised to run her first BQ um, 
this fall and she always thought that she couldn't handle a certain amount of training. She came in and said like, okay, you know, I want to work with you. I want to work with a coach. I, you know, want to go after these marathon goals, but I can't run more than 40 miles per week because I always get injured. And I said, okay, we are definitely going to start you lower than 40 miles per week. But after a couple of weeks of getting her training smart, slowing her easy runs way down. Um, and again, implementing that polarized training, she's now quite a bit over 40 miles per week. And she's shocked at how good that feels, how much better her recovery is, how many fewer aches and pains she has. Um, so that's an example of like, you know, maybe she wasn't seeing, maybe it wasn't like fitness improvements she was seeing right away, but she was seeing differences right away just in recovery and all those other things. That's such a huge part of it is that not only just doing the training itself, but able to handle the training week over week, month over month. You know, yes. I, one of the things that continually blows my mind about when we see elite runners doing with their training and not, not that, that they just run 120 miles in one week, but that they do it week over week over week. And that really attests to the power of their ability to recover from that kind of high mileage. And I feel like a lot of runners, like you just said, are not taking their easy days easy enough. The reason they might be running into those limits and what they think their volume might be is because they're not polarizing their training properly. And also yeah. not polarizing your training properly will, you know, kind of lead you to a plateau where you're not seeing those gains. You're not getting faster. You're not improving your time, you know, and typically for a lot of runners, the response to a bad a bad race result is to train quote unquote harder the yes, next time, which yes. might be just like adding more speed or adding more goal pace work. And that's not necessarily what they need, right? Totally. Yeah. One of my philosophies is I always want, um, I always want to have people doing the minimum that they need to be doing to improve. Um, and again, that's another big mind shift for people. They're like, what? Like, no, like I have big goals. Like I'm type A. I'm so motivated to improve. I want to be doing the most I can do to improve. Okay. That approach may work in the short, short term, but long term, you put in one race cycle, let's say you're training as hard as you can, you're growing all of the variables we can grow. So you're increasing mileage and intensity and, um, you know, whatever else. Where do we go from there? That first of all, that may or may not work because you may end up injured or burnt out come at the end of the training cycle and doing all of those things. If you can't recover from that, you may not even be getting the proper stimulus from that. Um, but more importantly, again, where do we go from there? We need to Running is all about progressive overload. So to keep seeing improvements in the long term, we need to keep toying with each of those variables and increasing each of those variables. And if we don't leave ourselves room to grow, we're out of luck. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. One of the things that a lot of runners on their own run into is they tend to be very aggressive with the type of training that they do, whether they're following a training plan or they're kind of making things up as they go along, which is, I cannot stress enough how how that is not how you should be running. Do not make it up. Do not make it up as you go along. Do not make it up ahead of time. Um, but what we call training errors, like training errors, things that lead to injury, burnout, plateau, that sort of thing. One of the huge ones is increasing your volume and or intensity too rapidly mm -hmm. because our body can only adapt at a certain rate. And the kicker is that actually different parts of our bodies also adapt at different rates. So do you want to talk about the, the legs versus the lungs versus the bones, kind of like what that problem is where you think my legs feel, my lungs feel fine. I'll just keep doubling my mileage every week or whatever the training error is. Yeah. So increasing too quickly is a risky game. Some people can, some people can pull it off. I'm sure everyone's seen on social media, um, people doing, people participating in unhealthy training practices or training practices that any running coach worth their like would not recommend or have their people do. And again, some people may be able to get away with that. It all depends on their starting point, their lifetime training volume and history and all that stuff. Um, but in general, it's not recommended. And I would say the mechanical piece, the leg piece, um, 
is what we want to be like most protective of. And that's because of bone stress injuries, even though physically you may feel fine, like, okay, there may be, let's say you want to, um, you feel rushed to train for a race and you're like, I'm just going to like bump up my volume really quick and just kind of try to crash train for this. Getting past the recovery piece and the, even like the mental piece of um, being able to push yourself like that and probably going through a couple week period where running really hurts and really sucks. Um, even if you can withstand that, and even if you can handle that from an aerobic standpoint, that doesn't mean that you're not doing a lot of damage to your body, um, particularly your bones under the surface. All of that, that big increase in mechanical stress, that's where I see a lot of, you know, people running into stress fractures and stress reactions and things like that. And that can be really tough for new runners who are coming into the sport and like everything kind of hurts all the time anyways. Mm -hmm. And they think, oh, it's supposed to feel super hard. And I'm supposed mm -hmm. to feel totally like I'm hit by a truck after every run. Yeah. Yes. But, you know, actually, we that's not how running's supposed to feel longer than I honestly, like a couple weeks. If you're still feeling like you're being hit by a truck after every run or every day that you wake up and, you know, you're you're only running for a couple of weeks beyond that something might be going wrong. You might be stressing your body too much harder than it can actually recover from in the time that you're trying to uh, do your training. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And with, so I see, I see two different types of um, like broadly grouping two different types of people. So with beginner runners, a lot of them, you're exactly right. Come in with the expectation, like, Oh, um, especially if they're, taking up running later in life and don't have a frame of reference from like high school cross country or running, you know, as part of a team, um, they might have the perception that like running sucks, running is hard, running is supposed to feel awful. And with them, it's usually checking like, okay, how are we training? The majority of those people think that they need to be finishing every run out of breath. And if you're doing that, you are not training appropriately. Um, for like a brand new beginner runner, pretty much 100% of their training should be all easy conversational pace. Once we build a good base, then we can start to implement some faster running, things like pickups, fart legs, surges, strides. Um, but pretty much like 100% of your running when you're just starting out should feel truly easy and conversational. And for a brand new beginner runner, um, if you feel like you're like hobby jogging, perfect, you're doing it right. Um, so that's that's something I work with with beginner runners. And then something I see with like more experienced runners who are very type A, very motivated. They have um, a lot of them have like long histories with running and they've been at this for quite a while. Um, it's keeping their ego in check. So it's reminding them that, you know, no, you can't jump from 20 miles a week to 70 miles a week, even though your body has done and handled 70 miles per week in the past and being like tough is not good enough. Like that is where you run into, you know, exactly like we talked about those bone stress injuries and some of that scary stuff, even if mentally you can, you know, quote unquote, pull it off and get through it. And a lot of those people are aerobic monsters as we like to call them. So they, from like an aerobic standpoint, because they have that great lifetime training base, they may be able to aerobically make those bigger jumps. Um, but again, we can't forget about the underlying, like the mechanical, um, the, the leg side, quote unquote. And that second group of runners, that also fits the category of people who are coming from another aerobic sport, like people who are transitioning from being cyclists or swimmers. They are aerobic monsters with no impact history on yes, their body, yes, right? So yes, they might yes, be yes. able to throw down really unbelievable aerobic volume, but mm -hmm. their body is not yet anywhere near adapted to the stress of like running is a high impact sport. You are literally yes. out there pounding the pavement yes. and that adds up pretty quickly. Yes, yes, exactly. We can't underestimate that pounding. Um, and that's actually just a side note. That's something I talk a lot about with my postpartum women. Um, again, especially these like type A women who women who maybe ran in high school and college and they've, you know, they've been really successful marathoners pre-baby. They think that they can jump right back into this um, postpartum, the pelvic floor becomes an issue as well. So not only is your body taking all that pounding, not only is every organ and system in your body taking that pounding, um, but your pelvic floor is also taking that pounding and your pelvic floor has been through a really traumatic event, <laughs> you know, nine months of growing a large baby and um, then whatever, method of birth. So yeah, pounding is pounding. And we have to look at that from multiple um, perspectives, depending on the person, but you're exactly right that it's a huge factor and we can't underestimate that. But with all this, I kind of want to stress the timeline here, like from, from our perspective, again, as coaches, like we're talking about 
months, you know, in many of these situations we're talking about, depending on where you started and where you're trying to get to, we're typically talking, you know, two to six to eight months, depending on what we're doing here, which in the grand scheme of running is actually a very short period of time. Mm -hmm. It's about, again, shifting that focus away from expecting that overnight change to understanding like this is going to take time and I really need to be patient and consistent. Um, one of the things I like that you brought up when you were talking about your your history as a runner is that you said I I only started out doing one season. Mm-hmm. When you know you started out doing one season, you became a two season runner and a three season runner. When you're in school, running in school, whether in you know middle school, high school, or college, it's pretty easily marked where you have specific seasons. Yeah, and you then you have an off season, and it's like you don't necessarily need to or even want to at a certain level run year round, but for most runners, especially adult runners, runners who are not running in school, um, we do want to run year round or pretty close to it. And yeah. do you want to talk about the consistency factor? Consistency is one of the most important things you can do for yourself as a runner. Yes. Yeah. So that's that's a great point. I honestly, I think that many adult runners could stand to um like think more about the high school and college system. So in the high school and college system, you are peaking three times a year. That is that means that you are your absolute fittest three times a year and only three times a year. That means that you cannot be at your fittest for every single local road race, no matter you know how much your ego tells you you want to you know be the local champion, whatever, and um, just be in peak fitness year round, sweep all the local races, whatever, um, three times a year, and even within that three times a year is a lot to peak. I know a lot of people who struggled in the high school and college system, just having to peak three times a year. It's a lot. Um, And that is, again, that is considered year round training. So when you're not in season, you're in base building and you are doing that all year round. I do not recommend trying to peak more than that, I guess is, is what I'm saying. Again, the idea is we are like, we are contributing towards our fitness in some way year round. And that um, I always tell people the single best way to improve is stacking training cycle upon training cycle upon training cycle, Um, whether that's no matter what the focus is, whether it's base building or a race specific cycle, um, a race specific cycle for a different distance. um, That is how you get better with time. We just want to make sure that again, we're not doing too many race specific cycles in one year. Um, We are giving the body time to recover in between. And that can also be a big mental shift for some people is they're like, oh, I only want to train for races or like, I just finished a race. Okay, what's next? Let's jump right into um, a new race specific cycle. And it's me saying to them like, okay, first we have to recover and then we're going to go back into base building for a little bit. And that can vary for some people. We may only go into base building for like five to six weeks before the next cycle. Um, For some people, we may do a couple months. Some people, we may even spend a whole season um, just in base building in between cycles. Let's go back to what you said about peaking, because this is something I feel like a lot of runners don't really actually understand about their Mm -hmm. physiology and what it means to peak and how much time it takes to build up to reach your peak, what a fleeting moment your peak fitness actually is, and Mm -hmm. why we recommend you know, limiting the number of really big A races that you participate in in any given year. Because yeah, physiologically, um, it takes a certain number of weeks, typically anywhere from 10 to 20 on average to train for a race, depending on the race, the shorter the race, the shorter the cycle you can typically get away with. You don't necessarily train for a 5k for 20 weeks, but that would be more like 10 (laughs) to 12 weeks, but marathons are 20, maybe even 24 weeks, depending on where you're starting from. So we spend all of that time. That's how long it takes to train for that race. So if a runner comes to you and says, what can I, I have my first half marathon in three weeks. What kind of training should I do? It's like, you're you're already here. Like you're, the train's at the station. Like there's nothing, you can't do anything. Talk a bit more about building up to that peak and what peak fitness actually means. Yeah. So I like to view it. Um, I think I referenced this earlier, but like to view it as a pyramid. So the very bottom of the period, 
pyramid is base building. Um, and then from there, we go into race specific work that takes up the majority of the pyramid. And then at the top, the tiny little sliver or point is peaking. Um, I do think that like a lot of um, cookie cutter or online plans don't really go into what exactly peaking is, or they don't go into their methodology of what those kind of final weeks look like. Um, so again, ideally, ideally, you have some kind of base coming in. And ideally, that's, you know, as a coach, I'm sure you feel the same way. We like to see that that's at least like five to six weeks. Um, or at least you've been doing some kind of running, whatever. Um, then within the race specific cycle itself, training should be getting more and more specific to the demands of your unique event and should be getting more and more challenging as we progress. And you'll usually finish out that cycle with anywhere from one to three, um, maybe even four, depending on the person, peak weeks. Um, that's your hardest training. That's your most intense training. That's your most specific training. So um, for marathoners, that may mean you're doing like a couple like really big sessions um, with big volumes at marathon pace. For some of my more advanced people, that, that might be anywhere from like eight to 10 miles broken up at marathon pace. Um, those are your peak weeks. And then from there, we start our taper. And again, it's important that the taper is gradual. We're not making huge, huge cuts. It's not like we just stop running. <laughs> At that point, once you hit those peak weeks and then move into your taper, generally speaking, all of the fitness you're going to build in a race-specific cycle is built, and you're not going to get any fitter between race day, but you can make yourself worse off by screwing up that taper, screwing up those like peaking weeks. Um, so from there, we just want to make sure we're not, we're letting you rest, um, but not too much that we have you going into race day completely flat. And we're also sharpening you up with a little bit of, we want to keep um, muscle tension high by doing a little bit of shorter, faster stuff, maybe a little, a little bit of race pace work just to kind of grease the groove. Um, and that's, that's the process. Every single piece of that pyramid is important and contributes to that like reaching that peak appropriately. You can't miss a step. Um, you can't shortchange. Not to say that your entire training cycle needs to be perfect. That's a big myth. I see that trip up a lot of like people think I'm not going to be ready for my race because I missed one workout or I missed two workouts. Generally speaking, we just don't want to miss any big steps. And we don't want to try to rush or shortchange the process. But again, physiologically, each of those steps is important to making that peak happen and making sure that you're at your fittest and your sharpest when it counts, which is race day. One of the, the big things I see a lot of people do is that they enter their taper and they start to get squirrely and they, yes. they, they test their fitness and they say, well, I'll just go out and run, you know, maybe that maybe there's like a local 10K and they go jump into a 10K yes. and in their taper and they want to yes. see how fast and fit they've gotten. And that's like a kind of go back to the kind of the premise of this whole conversation is that, you know, the reason that your huge workouts are several weeks before race day is basically that's in a really oversimplified way, that's how long it takes for your body to realize the gains from those workouts. You know, yeah. you don't run a 20 mile run and all of a sudden the yes. next day you have <laughs> fully realized all of the benefits from that run. You've internalized them. You've like you've stored them. It's not like you went to the mileage store and just like added miles, you know, to I your, love that. Yeah. To the, it's, it, you know, but that's the reason that we have the taper is because it takes a couple of weeks to realize the gains that you get from those workouts. So interfering with your taper, doing too much in your taper is only going to contribute to, or I guess you should say inhibit the recovery that you need from that big workout, because it's all about balancing the stress and the recovery to get the adaptation that we want at the time that we want it. Totally. I think a lot of people, that's a great point. I think a lot of people don't realize that there is a lag effect to training. It's not exactly like you said, it's not like you're going to the workout store and making the purchase and you immediately like, quote unquote, download the results instantly. Um, it takes a while for your body to absorb that training and that absorption, I think it's also important to emphasize that absorption comes from rest. So that's why for many of my people, I build in down weeks to training. Um, most of my people do have at least one rest day per week. And those rest days are when your body absorbs your training and hard work. Um, so that's part of the ebb and flow of training. Um, but yes, you're exactly right that those taper weeks are critical because you're like, quote unquote, absorbing the last bits of your heaviest and peak training. Um, but yes, we want to make sure that it's very easy to get anxious in that period. We want to make sure that we're not leaving our race in a workout. We want to make sure we're not leaving our race in that you know, 10K that you, that example of like, you want to jump in for fun. It's also, this is such a, 
difficult time because people are at their fittest and that's very, very exciting. You know, it's, it's very easy to get excited by that and want to prove that or want to enjoy that and enjoy that a little bit too early. We want to make sure we're saving it for race day. Let's talk a bit about the, the progress and plateau cycle mm -hmm. as we go along especially for runners who are new or just anytime you do something new, you're going to realize fairly rapid progress, mm -hmm. you know, for somebody who starts running, especially later in life with any amount of training, they're basically mm -hmm. going to PR most times they go out. I mean, this is yeah. for new runners in the first year of running. This is the time where they're PRing, you know, their 5k PR every time they run a 5k, right? Or they might mm -hmm. be hitting PRs just during a workout. Oh my God, I just ran my fastest mile ever in this one workout because they're, they're starting from a place where it's like, you know, you, yeah, when you're new, there's a lot of progress to be made, but eventually, you know, we think about an exponential curve that's going to start mm -hmm. to slow down. The fitter that you become, the harder it is to realize some of those, um, PRs are not going to come as quickly or as rapidly or as, um, often, mm -hmm. but just because you have not hit a PR, uh, you know, all the next time, every single time you go race, I guess what I'm trying to say is sometimes plateaus are actually part of your normal training process. Uh, and it's not necessarily something you should freak out about. It's totally okay to go through a couple training cycles and and maybe get only marginally faster or maybe even just be hitting the same. Well, as long as you're training properly, I guess the caveat is there. Yes. Yeah. So everyone, I've actually, I've shared a few diagrams on Instagram. Um, I think it helps for people to see this visually um, of what some improvement curves can look like. So you're exactly right that a beginner's curve is going to be like a quick shoot up. They're going to see results really really quickly. And that's really exciting. Um, and generally speaking, the longer you've been at it, the long, the more it's going to take or the slower your rate of improvement. Um, but also some people will continue, like some people will continue on what's kind of like a wobbly linear line. Some people will take more of what looks like a stepping stool model. So they'll make an improvement and then they'll plateau for a while and then make another, another improvement and then plateau for a little bit. Um, some people's will be a little bit more of an ebb and flow, but still trending upwards. Um, so I always encourage people look at the big picture. Um, it's very, it's very difficult to do because we do put so much of ourselves into our training as runners and we're so invested in our hard work. We make so many sacrifices. Um, so it's easy to get emotional and, you know, be really upset about one particular race result, but think of it as data. Um, try to look at it objectively and try to look at it almost like on a map of all your other, um, or like a graph or chart of all your other racing results. Where does this fall? And, and, and try to kind of put it in the context of the larger scheme while also keeping in mind that there's so much ahead of you that you haven't seen yet. You're only seeing a very small part of the picture. Um, sometimes with people, um, they may not get the result that they want right away, but it's not that they, um, maybe it's like someone I've just started working with and they're like, but like, I've made so many changes and I'm seeing all these other wins in my training. I thought I would get a faster result this time around. And it's very easy to want to, um, like if you get a training result or a race result that wasn't what you wanted thinking like, okay, I have to start from scratch. Like I'm doing everything wrong. I have to throw clearly throw out my training style or approach. And for the majority of people, I would argue all you have to keep doing is exactly what you've been doing. You just need to be doing it for longer. Um, so be patient again, like there's so much of the picture you haven't seen yet. Um, and I guarantee if that person just continues training smart, continues doing exactly what, what they're doing and with a ton of consistency, their next race result is going to be a big jump up. Um, but with, with plateaus, so yes, plateaus can absolutely be a part of anyone's improvement curve and it's generally not, um, generally not something to worry about. Again, I would look at, were we controlling everything that we can control in the training cycle? And was there anything causing this race result that we couldn't control? So was it that you put in an amazing training cycle and are in great shape, but you got a really hot day or you had, you know, something went wrong with the race itself. Maybe it was a really small race and um, there wasn't a lot of spectators and, you know, what, whatever it may be. Um, were there any external factors that could have contributed to that race result? Basically, was it really a plateau? Do we know that it was really a plateau? Um, and then um, 
And then also we need to look at how long that plateau is happening. So a former coach of mine always said that if someone can run a race result really, really consistently, that is one of the biggest signs that they are fit as hell and ready for um, a really big breakthrough down the road. And that's actually been, I can say from personal experience, this happened to me once in high school, this happened to me once in college in the 5k, but in high school, I remember the 520 mile my junior year was my nemesis. I ran it about four times in a row. And every single time I was convinced I was going to break it. And I just kept ramming my head against that barrier for some reason. And then once I finally broke it at the end of that season, I broke it by five seconds. So that's a perfect example. If, if you are plateauing within a season, or even if you're plateauing over a couple seasons, um, and again, we're controlling for things that are outside our control, like weather and other factors, um, even people getting sick in a training cycle, like that's something that's not your fault, but could affect your race result. Um, controlling for those other things, I don't think that's a concern. If you're someone who has been at the exact same marathon time for like several years now, then yes, maybe it's time to talk about how can we tweak our training? What can we do differently? things like that. That's such an important point. And I think one of the frustrating things, especially because longer distances have commensurately longer training cycles that, you know, it's much different than if you run, if you do three 5k training cycles, you know, or three 5ks, you're talking about, you know, six months, eight months. But if you're talking about three marathon training cycles, you're probably talking about one, one and a half to two years, you yeah. know? <laughs> so yeah. as you mentioned this a couple of times, it's such an important point to, I think, keep coming back to is that, what happens on race day is not necessarily an indication of your fitness because mm -hmm. there is so the only thing you can control is your buildup basically. And even then there are some things that are out of your control when it comes to your buildup because life happens yes. and you could show up on the start line. And I know if you listen to any elite runner talk about when a race where they talk about how good their buildup was, and then they had a really not up to what they expected to do on race day performance, mm. that doesn't mean they're any less fit than they were going to the race. It just means that they had a bad race day. And so I think divorcing the specific race result from all the work you've done. I mean, you work, you know, months, sometimes years of training, maybe it's just the wrong day, right? One mm. day does not reflect all of the work that you've done before. And I, that's something that's really hard for a lot of runners to kind of square with because we, we want these tangible on paper. It says I got faster. So now I yes. believe it, right. That we feel yes. good about it. I mean, what do you say to your runners or to anybody who asks and like that, how do you help them separate their, I guess their ego or their self-esteem from a time? Yeah. So, um, related to what you just said, um, I was going to say that Boston marathoners will know just how intimately true that is because there have been so like how many Boston marathons have there been where marathon Monday was trash weather. And then that there's like a running joke, um, in the Boston community that that next Tuesday is like perfect 40 to 50 degree weather. It's, you know, it's unfair. Um, managing people's expectations is huge, especially at the marathon distance. And that's exactly why, as I was, as I was saying before, it's so important to have those. I really encourage people to find those wins within their training. Um, I really encourage people just from a mental and psychological standpoint to make sure that they're not overly attaching themselves to their goals, um, their time goals that I make sure I want to make sure that they're setting process-based goals along the way as well. Because again, getting fitter, you can be getting fitter, even if you, um, if you are training smart, you will be getting fitter, whether or not you get that final outcome. And just because you don't get that final outcome you want in one training cycle does not mean you're not capable of it. And it does not mean that it's not going to happen. But with a marathon, it's, it's, it's very difficult because exactly as you said, you put so much time, the training cycles are so long, and there's one race. And if it doesn't go poorly, even for things, reasons that you have no control over, um, it's, you can't go out the next week and just run another one. Um, you have to wait quite some time before that next redemption marathon. So again, it's setting a lot of process-based goals. It's making sure people are not overly tied to their expectations. Their whole self-worth is not tied to one race result. But also, um, I like to do either fitness tests or tune-up races or both within a training cycle as opportunities for people to get that concrete feedback that, yes, you're getting fitter. Yes, the work you're doing is valuable and is working. Um, just knowing that, again, like if you're training for something like a marathon, you're not going to be getting a ton of marathon 
race opportunities. And even especially with marathon specific training, I would talk about the marathon a lot. And there are a lot of runners who listen to this podcast who train for various distances and have no interest in doing a marathon ever. Um, mm -hmm. But even half marathon, I mean, the longer distance races, we don't typically spend all that much time at goal pace. Like the only time you're really going to spend that much time at goal pace is actually on race day yes. and doing that, you know, spending, well, why don't I just continue to run or increase my long run at that goal pace week over week over week? Like, isn't that how I get faster? You know, mm -hmm. why can't I just increase one mile every week at my goal pace? And that's just not how you train your body to increase endurance or to um, realize aerobic fitness gains. But um, something I wanted to ask you about, and this is a question that I've gotten enough where I've been like, okay, this is a thing. And I have a theory behind this. And I want to hear your take on it too, is that obviously one of my big things is trying to get people to slow down in their easy days. Mm -hmm. Most runners do not spend enough time in their easy zone. And even if they think they're in their easy zone, they're actually might not be running easy enough because easy running is slow relative mm -hmm. to the other running your race paces that you do. So when I finally convince people to slow down and they're running their easy days easy, they're coming from a place where they're used to running everything harder or hard-ish all the time. And this usually in the first couple of weeks, the first month or two that they have actually slowed down to keep their easy days easy. And they ask me why they've gotten slower at their faster paces mm -hmm. as a result of slowing down on their easy days too, and or why their harder paces now feel harder than they did before. Do you have an answer or a theory behind this? Because I have a, I have a theory about why this is. Yeah. So um, I think, again, that goes back to the single most important thing is getting people to buy in and getting people to buy into that long-term approach, realizing that, yes, you probably will see small wins um, in the short term, but you have to be in this. Like if you, if your goal is to be running for a long time and to like truly explore the depth and breadth of your potential in running, it's a very long, it's a long game. Um, so I also think, so So it's going to take time to, I would tell them time to adapt to getting used to a new training style, getting used to polarized training. But also I think it's important to realize that if they were training for a long time and running all of their easy days, um, anywhere from, depends on how many days they're running per week. Like let's say they're running four to six days per week. You're running four to six days per week hard. Like that is insane. Um, your body is probably very stressed and very tired. So once you finally back off your body, like, is almost like taking a breath of fresh air and your body may then just kind of be recovering from that what may have been like overtraining before. So again, I would expect that as the person gives it time, gets used to this new style of training, yeah, and just it just starts actually training correctly, it might not be a quick fix, but over time they will not get less fit, they will actually get more fit. Yeah, no that that's I think that's definitely part of it. Basically feel like if you've if you've had your pedal down, you know, pedal to the metal and your engine's been redlining this whole time, once yep. you finally back off, like you said, your body's gonna be like, oh, thank God. Oh my God. Okay, good. Mm -hmm. I finally get yep. a break now. Um, yep. And maybe there is an overtraining component or definitely a, an overreaching component to yes, 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 um, yes. finally giving your body a chance to actually catch up and recover. And my other theory that to go along with this is that once you actually figure out what easy running is supposed to feel like, you realize how hard you've been running everything, right? Totally. Once you actually slow down totally. and go, oh, this is what easy is. Oh my God, easy feels easy. And you realize, oh, actually by in re in relation to my actual easy effort, wow, that actually, that hard effort is hard. Wow. That's different. That's such a, that's such a great way to put it. Yeah. You, I mean, you are literally experienced experiencing polarized training. Um, you're experiencing the fact that your easy pace should feel quite a bit like there is a noticeable difference um, between the different paces. And also that like on hard days, you have to, it really takes like challenging yourself and pushing yourself out of your comfort zone a little bit, which again is good and is ultimately going to be a really good and important skill to have. But when you're doing everything in that gray area pace, you're not, you know, you're not challenging yourself a ton and you're also not letting yourself properly recover. So it's it's hard to kind of feel those differences in effort. Yes, we keep our easy days easy so that we can go hard on our hard days. Because if you're going hard on your easy days, you can't go hard enough on your hard days because you're too tired, basically. Yes. 
Yeah. And I think it's also important to say that on the hard days, yes, they may feel hard. And yes, like the goal is again, progressive overload. We want to be challenging our bodies more and more in order to see continued to get that like continued stimulus. Um, but you're only doing those hard days, like two days per week, maybe three with some people. So again, like the majority of time you are running easy and there's just a few push days per week where we are like really challenging ourselves, trying to push the envelope. For people who are wondering, okay, but like how long does it take for me to see the benefits of easy running? <laughs> I'm going to go back to say, you know, let's give it, I would say three months, the length of it, a typical, um, the average length of a training cycle. Of course, some can be longer, some can be shorter. What I like to do with my athletes is that we do, you know, some of them see benefits sooner and it's not even necessarily getting faster. They can just run longer without yeah. feeling fatigued as fatigued. Yeah. What I like to do is I like to take their pace, I like to plot their paces over time, like you said, even yeah. just looking at the three month picture or even the six month picture or the year picture or the two year picture and like drawing that line, not drawing literally, cause I have Excel do it for me, but like, <laughs> you know, putting, putting it in a graph and be like, look at that downward line. Look at that. Look at that increasing. Look at that trend line that yes. says, Hey, guess what? You're getting faster. And it might not feel like that every day because our easy pace can change so much depending on so many factors about fatigue and weather and menstrual cycle and mm -hmm. all these different things. So, you know, just because your easy pace isn't getting faster every single day doesn't mean that you are not, again, getting faster on a cellular level. Yeah, I like to look at um, I like to like to look at training cycles as a unit in time as well. Um, so I always say for someone who, again, it totally depends on the person and their starting point. But for someone who is coming in, and I know, like I do, one of the first things I do, we have a conversation, um, me and any new client, and then I ask a bunch of questions. I get a bunch of data from them, and I basically do an audit of their current training. And if I have someone who I'm like, oh wow, first of all, there's so much low hanging fruit here. Like long term, the, this person is going to see so much improvement just from training correctly because there's so many mistakes they're making now. Um, those people, I usually say like, give me a training cycle. Um, any goals we have for this first training cycle, like let's set some A, B, and C goals so that we're setting ourselves up for success and we have different, you know, outcomes that we're shooting for. Um, but also like, give me a full training cycle, commit to my style of training, commit to training properly and smart. Um, if we see huge results in that one training cycle, great. Um, again, like some people are really quick responders to training, others take longer. Um, but in general, that first training cycle, I like to view it as like an acclimation period. Um, and then we start to go after some really big goals in the second training cycle. That's such an important thing is to kind of say, like, there is no guarantee on your goals. So let's set a couple. Yeah. Um, cause that's the thing I talk to my clients about as well. And I say, you know, we talk, I, you know, the whole, like you said, kind of that audit that all these questions, tell me about all the things that you're doing, a bunch mm -hmm. of information from them. And some of them do some clients come to me, they don't actually have a goal. They just want to become better runners. And that's almost yeah, like, yeah. all right, this is great. Let's just base build and make you a better runner. But some come with very, very specific goals. Mm -hmm. And the very first thing is to look at their recent training history and then their, the entirety of their training history and say, first of all, for me, is this person setting a realistic goal yes. in the time frame that we're working on? Because somebody might have a goal that is achievable, but not in the next four months, yes. maybe not in the next year. Can they achieve it in the next five years? Yeah, yeah probably, but it's not going to happen in the spring, right? Yep. It's not going to happen right away. So that's one of the most, the biggest mismatches I feel like runners do when they're setting goals is that they they don't set goals that are necessarily too aggressive. Actually, I think some runners don't set goals that are aggressive enough. Um, but when they set aggressive goals, sometimes they're just the time frame that they're looking at is the unrealistic part here. Totally. Yeah. And I think that goes back to what you were saying um, early on is that some runners may um, hear that it takes like anywhere from six to eight weeks to see like fitness gains and think like, oh my God, that's so long. Whereas more experienced runners, people who've been at this for years have been lifelong runners may be like, that's nothing. I'm of the opinion that that's nothing. That time is going to go by so much quicker than you realize. But I totally understand like the sticker shock <laughs> to newer people who are like, oh my God, like I have to work so hard for six to eight weeks and just to, just to kind of like level up in fitness and see concrete improvements. Um, so yes, that notion of time frames can be really tricky. Um, 
And I completely agree. I think a lot of people really sell themselves short and aren't thinking big enough, but then there are other people who are thinking big, which I love, but maybe think that it's going to happen for them right away. And I will say there are some people who it, I mean, I've had people set huge, they respond really quickly. They set big PRs in just one training cycle. They are not the norm. I think it's important for people to manage your expectations and know that. And again, if it happens, great. Like maybe that's our A plus goal for the training cycle. But as an A goal, let's set something a little bit more realistic. Um, and yeah, and just and just kind of start chipping away. But yes, in general with new people um, or people who we have to do like kind of a big overhaul of their training style, I say, give me one training cycle to get acclimated um, and just, just get used to my style of training. And then in our next training cycle, let's put some like big time goals on the calendar and and we can start talking more about those more specific goals. Let's talk about those big PRs because that's one of those things like I love Instagram and I hate Instagram because mm -hmm. I love Instagram because it's a platform for us people like you and me and other coaches and other professionals I know to actually disseminate, you know, proper information about training and nutrition and, and recovery and all of that. But then for, you know, I'm not at all faulting people who share their own training, but it can feel like when you're on Instagram, all you see are people's wins. Yeah. All you see are those huge PRs, like that brand new runner who qualified for Boston on their very first marathon yeah. and think, what's wrong with me that I can't do that, right? Why, yeah. why is everybody in the world seeming to hit these massive PRs every time they go out for a training cycle? And yet I've been trying to get sub four for two years now, you know? Yeah. Um, and that's frustrating because one, Instagram is not real life. I want to, I want to like, cannot say that enough. But two, it, I would be remiss if we didn't at least acknowledge the, the physiological kind of genetic differences between people in some of us, no matter how hard we train, are never going to reach a goal that we might want to reach because, and this just is one of those things that sucks. It's just not the hand that we were dealt in our ability. Can we become much better than we probably think we can? Absolutely. Will I ever run in the Olympic marathon? No, no matter how hard I train, that's never, ever, ever going to happen just because I, I do not have the genes for that. And that can be really frustrating because you kind of don't know which you are until you actually start training properly. Yeah. That's the biggest thing I emphasize with people is just give yourself a shot. You have no idea until you try. Um, I also always remind people that there's always, always the comparison trap is such an ugly game. There's always, no matter how fast you get, no matter how big your PR is, there will always be someone faster than you. And there will always be people slower than you, no matter how, you know, again, that goes for beginner runners, no matter how slow you think you are, there's always people slower than you, um, or at least 99% of the time. Yes, the comparison game is ugly and you can get so caught up in that. Um, everyone physiologically is going to respond differently depending on your genetic makeup, depending on your muscle fiber composition. And it's like that for any sport. I mean, think about how as kids, we are pushed towards certain sports over others. Um, me being again, like a very mediocre softball player. I was like, to my parents, really, you guys never saw that maybe there's another sport I was better suited for. But you know, again, everyone has their strengths and weaknesses. Everyone has sports and activities they're more suited for. And those people who are maybe more physiologically suited for running or who are quicker responders to training and running in distance running, um, those are generally people who you know have a big makeup of slow twitch muscle fibers. Those people are going to improve quicker. It is what it is. It's unfair, but that doesn't mean that you can't work to optimize your own genetic makeup and, and just kind of, you know, follow your own improvement curve. You can always optimize what you've got and get better within the constraints of your own genetics. You know, how long does it take? Well, it takes as long as you've got. I think that's the other part of this is that it's so few of us ever actually reach our full potential, right? For whatever reason. So we you know maybe we started a little bit late and we're never going to reach the full potential of what we were capable of when we were younger, but we can reach our work towards our full potential where we are now. But if you like give up, or try to shortcut it or don't respect the time that it's going to take for you to get there. You've shared the most beautiful graphics on Instagram, that progress mm -hmm. curve, right? You might've given up right before you yes. saw the big breakthrough. And so, yeah. you know, every time you think about, is this really worth it? Well, first of all, you have to love the sport. Like don't do this if you don't like, enjoy doing yes. it. Yes. That's one of the beautiful things about running is that just around the corner might be what you've been looking for this whole time, but you're never going to know. You're never going to find it until you actually keep walking or running down the path towards it.
Yes, yes, totally. And that was the other thing I was going to say about your example with Instagram, seeing all these big flashy PRs. Again, going back to you, you are not looking at the full picture. You are looking at one moment in time. And so many times with these people, um, these people who, you know, all of a sudden, it, first of all, it appears like they've come out of nowhere. And in reality, um, because you're only seeing snippets of their life and their training, most of the time they really have not come out of nowhere. Um, these people having big breakthroughs, most of them have been at it for years. Most of them have been, have had setbacks and bad races along the way. And you're just seeing this high. But also, I see a lot of times on Instagram, people are using unhealthy or unsustainable training practices. And so they can get these quick results. They can get these big splashy PRs. And I, I've seen it dozens and dozens of times. A couple months later, they're a no start to the next training cycle because they're in a boot, they're injured, they have a stress fracture, or they get stuck in um, months and months of an injury cycle and you know get stress fracture after stress fracture. And it's because of those, like we talked about that lagging effect of you know, you can sustain unhealthy. Um, there's a lagging effect to training, and that goes with unhealthy training as well. Um, it may be fine in the short term, but eventually it will catch up with you. Um, so just know, take everything with a grain of salt, um, and know that you know everything is not as it seems on Instagram. That's such an important point. I mean, it may seem like it, because of the lag effect whatever the thing is that you're doing, whether it's that rapid increase in volume, whether rapid increase in intensity, maybe it's under fueling to try to yes. drop weight with thinking that's going to make you faster. Yeah. Like you said, it, it might work in the short term. It's always going to catch up with you always. Yes. Yes. That's the thing. Yeah. You might get that PR, but you've done so much damage along the way that all you've done is sabotage anything that, you know, you future gains, basically. It's robbing tomorrow to pay for today. Yes. The stable, slow, really unsexy way of training is what's yeah. going to get you there. And I think back to, you know, the pro runners that I really admire, Sarah Hall specifically. I mean, Sarah's in her late 30s. She has been running marathons professionally for over a decade now, and she just puts in the work. She puts in the work and she keeps getting fitter and she keeps showing up. And even though she doesn't always have the race that she wants, she keeps showing up and keeps getting faster. That's the most amazing yes. thing. You know, not every workout is going to be an Instagram workout. Not every easy run is going to be some giant breakthrough. But like you just you just got to do it. You got to put the work in because the dividends are there at the end of Absolutely. the road. Yeah, Sarah Hall is such a great example of that. Des London, I would say, is another great example of that. Both of these women have been in the sport for so long. And so many people, when Des won Boston, um, she did not come out of nowhere. She's been at this for years and years and years. And she's been consistently great. Obviously, this was like over the top great. Um, but again, it was not out of nowhere. And I mean, look at Des just ran Boston this past year. Wasn't, you know, probably wasn't her full potential. But that's her like that's her ebb and flow. Pro runners go through it too. And with Sarah Hall, like Sarah Hall has been a master of consistency. She is always there, even if she's not winning a race. Um, like she's consistently good or consistently great, even if she's not spectacular at every single race. Yeah. It's a great example for runners. And Deslin says, just keep showing up. Just keep yes. showing up. Yep. Yeah. And yep. showing up for ourselves too. I think that's uh, for the millions of us runners who are never going to stand atop a podium, even at a local race. <laughs> You know, we do this for ourselves and it's about showing up for ourselves too. This is not how we make our money. Absolutely. This is not how, you know, we don't, we're not sponsored athletes. We're not professionals. Maybe we're back of the pack. We're doing this for ourselves. Mm -hmm. And you have to, if you're going to show up for anyone, you have to show up for you. Because if you're, Absolutely. If this is for you, you're doing this to make you better at the end of the day. Absolutely. And again, everyone has, no matter what your starting point, no matter what your ultimate potential is, um, everyone can get better with what they have. Everyone can explore their own unique potential. It is so rewarding. Um, it's what, what draws so many of us to distance running in the first place, but also everyone, everyone deserves to give themselves a chance and to do it right. Um, that's what I say with hiring a coach is I, you know, a lot of people come, I'm sure you've experienced the same thing and they think they are not X enough for a coach. Oh, but like, I'm a beginner runner. Like I, I feel like I'm unworthy of a coach or, oh, but I'm not, I haven't even BQ'd yet. Like I feel silly hiring a coach. I'm not a professional runner. Why should I hire a coach? A professional coach will, a coach will help you to do things right. And if you have a goal 
you know, if you want to explore your potential, whatever that may look like, you deserve to do things right and smart and give yourself the best shot possible. Doing it with a long-term approach and a polarized approach versus just going out every single day and trying to run yourself into the ground. And there will always be people better and slower than you. And it's just all you can focus on is your own journey and just be as committed as possible to that journey. So if somebody's ever wondering, you know, I... I don't know if I need a coach. I don't really know what I'm doing, but I, I, you know, I'm running a couple miles. I'm run walking. Do coaches even take run walkers? Yes, we do. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that, to do it properly, I think the key here is is properly, and also to say, you know, if you're not going to work with a coach, that's fine. There are so many training books out there, as Montana said earlier, reading about this at the sport becoming a student of the sport yourself there are so many resources out there for you to learn about proper training on your own that's just it's worth it for you to you know you owe it to yourself to do it properly if you're going to do this at all absolutely i totally agree yeah and even with um just as an aside, what you said about um, run walkers, I actually see a lot of like brand new beginner runners um, who've maybe like started and stopped trying running in the past. Um, and they've been forcing continuous running. And it's actually working with me or working with a coach to tell them like, hey, you don't have to be running continuously to start. You can start with run walking. You're probably going to be feeling, you'll probably feel a lot better doing that. Um, then again, like forcing yourself right into continuous running. And eventually you can work towards the goal of continuous running or you can always stay at run walking. Run walking is still very much running. So Jeff Galloway, who was an Olympian and kind of pioneered the Galloway run walk method of training. Yeah. Uh, if anybody's trained for a Disney race, you've definitely heard of Jeff Galloway. But just to kind of point out for people who don't think that run walk is actually really running, uh, Jeff Galloway ran a 216 marathon and walked a portion of every single mile in that marathon. Yeah. Let's run walk yeah. can actually, in some cases, get you to the finish line faster. And like, if, if we're going to be focusing on PRs at the end of the day, don't you want to get there as fast as you possibly can? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Montana, thank you so much for being my guest to this was a really wonderful conversation. Of course, you are a coach. Um, are you taking new clients right now? So I'm full at the moment, but I have a wait list going and I always tell people, um, I get on my wait list. It's non-binding, non-committal. Um, I can have a spot open up as soon as tomorrow. I can have a spot open up, you know, a month from now or even two months from now. Um, but if you're interested at all in working with me, reach out. I'd be happy to put you on the wait list and we'll keep you up to date as spots um, become available. But yeah. And you have the most, like I said before, the most beautiful Instagram account. I'm jealous of oh, your Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> um, so if you're not following Montana on Instagram, you definitely should at coach montana de pasquale and that's going to be linked in the show notes so you can find her follow her find out more about her as a coach montana is there anything else that you want runners to know about how long it takes when they're talking about progressing I think the single the single best thing that i can emphasize emphasize um as much as we especially a lot of us who run our type a people we love speaking in concretes we love you know getting specific timelines, the single best piece of advice I can give you is to throw out the timelines. Commit to exactly like we talked about, exploring your unique potential. Think about putting your blinders on. There's so much noise out there. There's so much noise. There's always going to be someone using a different training approach, whether that's smart or not smart. There's always going to be someone doing more than you, always someone doing less than you, someone faster or slower. Put the blinders on. Commit to your own path of improvement. Commit to training as smart as you possibly can, optimizing your own genetics and within your own time constraints. You know, if you're a busy mom of four, you're not going to have the same amount of time in a day as someone who's childless. So within your own limits, just optimize, you know, everything you have as best as you can. Um, know that you will see improvements if you are training smart. And like we talked about, you can see improvements as quickly as five to six weeks. Um, but long-term, the single best thing is you just have to stick with it. You have to stack training cycle upon training cycle. So if you're in this for the long haul, even if you have some ebbs and flows and some bad races here or there, you will be on that improvement curve. Um, and it's just, it's so worth it to do things right. And, to give yourself a chance. Just keep showing up. Keep showing up. Yes. Wise words of Des Linden. All right. Montana, thank you so much. It's a great conversation. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. Thanks, Elizabeth. Thanks for having me. 
I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Don't forget, you can always find and follow me on Instagram at Running Explained. And if you're looking for a coach or a training plan, check me out. Visit my website, runningexplained.co. That's runningexplained.co. See you next time. This content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you have regarding a medical condition.